0: My guest this week is member of the House of Lords and former leader of the Green Party, Baroness Bennett of Manor Castle. Natalie, welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: Thank you. Now, my first question to you today is, has COP26 been a success?
1: Well, I started off before COP started saying that we really have to acknowledge that this is all a process, not any kind of endpoint, And that what we would get out of COP would be nothing like what we actually needed, um, but would hopefully be some sign of progress. I guess I would, in you know, for one sentence summary, it's a little bit better than we might have sort of predicted as a middle line. Um, So we have made progress, but it's really worth stressing that there are actually two COPs going on here. There's the official one with delegations and fairly incomprehensible language and lots of discussion of brackets. And then there's the unofficial COP. I've called it the shadow COP. Someone talked about the good COP and the bad COP. Um, And that's the NGOs, the campaigners, you know, outside these gates, Extinction Rebellion, lots of scientists have all been there delivering a message about the incredible urgency of action and working out ways that they can work together to make that happen. And that has been a very successful COP. So you know, uh, perhaps you know, sort of four or five out of ten for the official, eight or nine out of ten for the unofficial. So
0: you're you're at the conference at the moment uh, as we're speaking, and uh, it's uh, about quarter to five in the afternoon at the moment. We've just heard John Kerry speaking for the United States, and he's arguing it's time for us to really come together now. We're in the home stretch of reaching a deal. What What is the general feeling among the delegates at the moment at where the progress of the summit is at?
1: Well, I've just stepped out of that plenary in which John Kerry is actually speaking. Um, and that was originally going to be at 12 o'clock and then started somewhere around, I think, about 2.45. Um, and it began with Alok Sharma the from the UK presidency saying, please folks accept this and was there was some talk that this might have actually been the final plenary the closing of COP, Uh, but what we heard was uh, India been sat backed up by South Africa getting up and expressing um, concern about what's actually been one of the great successes of this COP, which is the fact that the words fossil fuels have been written into a, a UN fccc agreement for the first time ever. This might be of considerable astonishment to lots of people listening. Uh, it's not strong enough terminology. It talks about ending inefficient fuel subsidies. Um, and as uh, a World Wildlife Fund uh, speaker was saying earlier today, you know, all Uh, fossil fuel subsidies are inefficient but we saw South Africa and India expressing disappointment with that and then very much in response we saw a number of African countries including Tanzania getting up and saying well you know we know that the loss and damage which is the recompense broadly for the global south suffering the damage that the global north has had um, we think there should be more loss and damage so as we speak this wrestle is going on I think the odds are that we will probably end up with a text, the text we have now or something very like it. Um, But I can't be absolutely certain as I talk to you today.
0: So, as you mentioned, the conference is seriously overrunning at the moment. It was due to finish on Friday, 6 p.m. But as you say, the discussions are still ongoing. Now, you've already addressed some of the concerns other nations have here. But are we in the territory where it's simply a process of crossing, crossing T's and dotting I's? Or are there still some real fundamental red lines from some of the parties involved?
1: Um, I think as I talk to you now, it's very hard to say. I mean, it is a reflection of the fact that it is a, a really substantial change that we have coal and fossil fuels explicitly in the text of the declaration. That is a big step forward. Now, what campaigners were hoping for a couple of days ago, I asked another WWF speaker, you know, what their dream would be. And that would have been to set the deadline for the complete phase out of fossil fuels. I don't think anyone ever realistically expected that we were going to get that in the declaration. I mean, it's worth saying, explaining to people perhaps that the way COPS works is it has to be by consensus. Any single state can get up and stop this. Now, of course, there's huge amounts of diplomatic pressure being applied on on people uh, to, you know, when it comes to the crunch point as it is now. Um, But so, you know, what we get is always utterly inadequate. But I think it is encouraging that, and if we keep fossil fuels and coal there in the declaration, that's a big step forward. Um, So, you know, it's progress. We're hopefully getting there, but it would be an absolute disaster if if they were to be knocked out at this stage.
0: COP is an annual event. There's a, a summit every year in a different city around the world. So is it really essential to strike a deal in Glasgow when the same conversations are going to happen again next year and continue in the uh, Egypt summit?
1: Well, as I said, this is very much a process. And so each time you want to be seen to be going forward. Now, what we're actually doing now, and one of the other very important areas of this is what's known as the carbon rule book. Um, and this is article six of the declaration. And there's been a huge amount of um, ink spent on this and many, many weary hours. And this is talking about how we do the kind of accounting for carbon that um, was agreed would happen at Paris. This is also known as the Paris rule book. And we're actually you know, now looking at bringing this into effect. Now, you know, this is very, very technical stuff, but what I hear from the NGOs is they're still concerned about the issue of double accounting, um, the ways in which, you know, I actually stepped away from this, um, from COP briefly and went over to Hexham for the um, Northern Farming Conference. And there, you know, farmers were making this very concrete by saying, you know, if I store carbon on my land, am i going to get that being recorded against me but what happens about the person who buy my crops who also wants to claim credit for that and you know on an international scale that's essentially what we're talking about with carbon accounting with the article 6 the paris rulebook all of these things are to make sure that people aren't able to essentially get counting for carbon twice or even worse, and is a grave concern, is that there's a process, long been extremely controversial, mm-hmm. called REDD+, um, which is theoretically mm-hmm. stopping deforestation happening and getting credits for that. Um, but there's very large concerns about that process. And underlying that really is a principle which is being stated very strongly at this COP. It isn't reflected in the final declaration that offsetting is a con. Um, the idea that we can keep emitting fossil fuels and plant some trees in recompense, that is an absolute con. We have to both plant the trees, look after the forest, look after the soils, look after the, the mangroves and the seagrass meadows and restore them and stop using fossil fuels. It's not an either or. And that's why this whole issue, this area is so important. Um, and we have seen real progress here in the biodiversity Um, It has been paired with the climate emergency, the fact that we've got a collapse in biodiversity um, in a way perhaps more than it ever has been before, but there's still a long way to go in this area.
0: So just on the uh, carbon emissions, one of the the biggest criticisms throughout the the summit was actually from the world leaders meeting right at the start of COP26. And the the hypocrisy of leaders and senior figures and billionaires taking large private jets and pumping out huge amounts of uh, carbon emissions i mean take president biden for example he arrived in italy with an 85 car motorcade and arrived in glasgow with a 20 car motorcade on top of having air force one other private jets for his other officials and helicopters i mean do do you think that level of hypocrisy from these leaders who are talking about the virtues of reducing emissions actually undermines the importance of what everyone's there to discuss
1: That level of expenditure of carbon uh, is clearly indefensible but I think if we look at this the other way around you take you we've just been hearing from uh, delegates from the Marshall Island you know people who really had no alternative but to fly here and it's absolutely crucial that we hear their voices here and there is still something about being in a room with someone and those people being able to look um, their developed world compatriots in the eye and say what are you doing look what you've done to us that I think you the idea that you can make this entire virtual is not realistic, and I think there's a really important point to be made, and it's actually made by a a delegate I think from Lithuania who's charted the way in which he got here very complicatedly across Europe over land rather than flying, um, and pointed out how much it cost, how difficult it was, um, and you know how uncomfortable it was. Um, The slogan is system change, not climate change, and rather than focusing on individuals' behaviour, I'd rather ask um, the leaders across Europe why haven't you made train, ferry, travel, far easier, far cheaper, far more convenient. What we need to do is make it so that that's the natural way to travel. Um, that means, you know, taxing airlines, um, aviation fuel as it isn't taxed now it means you know changing things so that it's viable for people and you know that's one of the things that we hear a great deal about in, in the, uh, the alternative cop the shadow cop um, things like social innovation you know if you think about a four-day working week as a standard with no loss of pay uh, that for people would mean that, you know, maybe you can stack the holidays together more and, and, and go somewhere overland by train, you know, ideally on a sleeper train, something the German Greens have been very strong in pushing. You know, you can go, I've been to Marrakesh and to Helsinki by train and ferry, um, and, you know, make those things easy, affordable for people. So, you know, I, rather than focusing particularly on the individual actions, Know, whatever one might think of Boris Johnson's private jet and, you know, what's wrong with it, wrong with a commercial flight. Um, but rather than focusing so much on that, let's say, what are you doing to make it possible for everyone to get where they want to go um, by low carbon
0: routes? And the, the whole narrative around COP26 and indeed the whole climate change debate, it seems to centre around what governments around the world can do to slow and halt the effects of climate change. But I mean, you mentioned some of the uh, innovations there and uses of the the private sector. Do, Do you think there needs to be a greater focus on what the market can do, what the private sector, what private companies can do to make a difference? Or do you think the focus really does need to be on governmental change?
1: Uh, Well, I think we need to, and we can as individuals, you know, talk to companies, tell them we want better. And in fact, what we see is if you think of the, the sort of three main groups in society, you know, all the surveys all of the action, what you see on the street shows that the people are hugely in advance of what they want. And you think about what happened, there were climate assemblies, representative groups doing deliberative democracy in both the UK and France, and they came up with some very strong measures, um, which governments then watered down, unfortunately. But the people are leading, businesses are chasing after um, the people, and governments are in a very weak third position. But there is a problem, you know, we can ask business to do better, but there's always a problem with even businesses that might want to do better. Um, if there's still cowboys that are allowed to get away um, with, you know, trashing the planet. Um, and it is worth stressing, you know, the climate emergency is only one of the ways in which we're busting our planetary boundaries. You know, we're also turning our oceans into a plastic soup. We're also destroying our soils, destroying our biodiversity. Um and polluting um, with all sorts of things, including particularly nitrogen and phosphates. Um, so you know, we have to create a situation where those things are illegal. And what we have to do is make sure that price tag of any product actually reflects its real costs. You know, the economists call this the externalized costs. They have to be on the price tag. But then because there's so much poverty and inequality in the world, we also have to make sure that everyone has access to the resources that they need. And you know, I, I'd say, you know, one of the messages I'm trying to spread again and again in COP and outside is there's enough resources on this planet for everyone to have a decent life, for us to look after nature and climate if we just share them out fairly.
0: Was it right for the COP26 summit organisers to actually put a a ban on representatives from the nuclear energy industry from attending, despite nuclear being one of the cleanest and most efficient forms of energy providing?
1: There was absolutely no ban on nuclear representatives here. They actually had a stall in the main uh, pavilion alongside all of the nations, and indeed there was um, considerable resistance uh, and concern about that. Without going through the whole debate, which probably deserves a podcast on its own, what I would say about new nuclear is that it is simply too slow. We're in a climate emergency. We have to know the 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 world is agreeing that we have to slash our emissions by 45 percent by 2030 we would say the developed world has to go much faster than that Mm -hmm. we're not going to have any new nuclear within 10 years at an absolute minimum new nuclear is irrelevant to the emergency action we need to take now And it's a distraction when if we were focusing on renewables and particularly the Cinderella of energy conservation, um, then that is the way forward. Nuclear is a failed dead end from the 20th century.
0: Okay. well, uh, one of the other uh, energy sources that is not exactly the most sustainable energy source, but something that the UK government in particular is. Uh, pursuing is a new coal mine in Cumbria, and it's raised a, a lot of controversy, I, I see you shaking your head at that. I mean, th- this new coal mine is going to use, be used specifically for coking coal. Uh, so why why are environmental campaigns such as yourself so against the idea of this new mine, which would actually prevent the need for coked coal to be imported from other places like Russia, thus uh, creating a far, far smaller carbon footprint?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, to say that it's expected up to 80% of the product of that mine would actually go overseas. So the claim that it's just for our steel industry doesn't stack up. But in the broader issue, you know, what we need to do and indeed what other countries are doing and the government likes to claim they're being world leading a lot. But um, in Sweden, uh, there's a, a steel company there which actually has just delivered its first um, truly low carbon steel made using hydrogen instead of coking coal um to volvo Um, that was only an initial delivery but they're expecting to be in full commercial operation by 2026 Um, and i've been pushing the government saying what are you doing about steel made with hydrogen instead of coking coal and I've got absolutely no answer in fact I got one minister who looked at me at the house very blankly and kind of said I've got no idea what you're talking about which is a worry Um, but also you know even more simply in technology that's fully developed and available now Britain exports three quarters of our scrap steel now what we could have is dotted around the country half a dozen renewably powered arc furnaces to recycle that steel And that would make the UK very nearly self-sufficient in steel. Instead, what we do now is ship it off to places like Turkey where it's recycled under extremely dirty, you know, uh, very, very far from ideal conditions. So, you know, instead of thinking about new coal mines, we should be, you know, and all of Boris Johnson's 10 point green 10 point plan, you know, the non-existent magic, uh, no carbon aviation uh, carbon, carbon capture and storage which you know is simply a technology that isn't here let's focus on things we know we can do now like recycling our steel.
0: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned hydrogen there it's a really exciting innovation actually for for producing uh, cleaner fuels and uh, we saw earlier this month that uh, the construction equipment company JCB they they signed a multi-billion pound deal to have all their future products use hydrogen uh, rather than uh, fossil fuels and uh, electric because the the batteries simply aren't having the necessary amount of power. So given the, the huge advancements in hydrogen fuels and innovation around that technology, Why do you think more companies and even the government, as you say that, aren't moving towards pursuing this newer and cleaner source of power?
1: I think there's a huge problem with hydrogen because there's two sorts of hydrogen. There's what's known rather inaccurately as blue hydrogen, which should be called dirty hydrogen, which is hydrogen made with fossil fuels. And there's green hydrogen made with renewables, um, very often wind farms. And there is a real place, as you rightly identify, for hydrogen for some kinds of specialist uses, um, possibly for HGVs. Um, for heavy kind of mining type machinery, heavy earth moving machinery, there's certainly a place for that and it's also a place as a method of storage um, for when you know the wind's blowing really strongly and you've got a great deal of electricity running around that you want to store Um, but what we have at the moment from a government is a hydrogen strategy that came out very late um, and very unclear, which kind of went, well, we don't really quite know what's happening with hydrogen and we don't know how we're gonna use it. We'll have to think about this for a few more years. Um, And what we should be doing is identifying hydrogen as being only green hydrogen, i.e. renewable hydrogen and only being for those specific uses. I mean, what we're seeing is a real push from the gas industry uh, to say, oh, we can use this at home boilers and we can you know, put in boilers that can use 20% hydrogen with methane as well. Um, and that's really continuing our failed business as usual model when we have really need to, to transform.
0: And what, one of the transformations that government at the moment is uh, pursuing is a move towards uh, electric vehicles. And one way they're trying to push this is by placing a ban on the sale of petrol and diesel cars from 2030. I mean, vehicle manufacturers, they're, they're using these electric cars, they're creating the, the batteries for this, but it's a, the products that they're producing are very expensive already. So is that really a viable policy for the, or the ordinary consumer?
1: Well, the practical reality is because you know, whatever's decided here at COP now, fossil fuels are on their way out and we're seeing um, vehicle manufacturers rushing towards electric cars because they know that's the future and you know no one is going to want to be the last person to buy a fossil fueled car in December uh, 2029 um, so this is all an area that's going to move much faster than even the deadlines the government are setting and of course you know if you're going to retool retool a factory, From fossil fuel vehicles to electric vehicles you don't gradually run down your fossil fuel production and gradually upscale your electric you switch from one to the other so we're going to see that happening but of course you what we cannot afford to do environmentally socially economically is have a one-for-one swap one fossil fuel car for one electric car you know, the answer for transport in cities and towns has to start with active transport walking and cycling go for public transport you know far better bus services in particular local bus services better trains particularly you know, i recently had a speaker trying to get to an event to east west across the uk and it's just about impossible um across england um, and so you know, electric cars nothing like we're not talking about a one for one replacement we're talking about something like a one for ten replacement car clubs people so people don't own a car they just use a car rent a car when they really need to use a car pay for it according to their use which will encourage them not to use it we make public transport far cheaper so what we need is is an utter modal shift in the way we get around but also and you know what we've seen with covid 19 people are really rethinking the kind of hypermobility. We had until very recently you know can we talk as you and i are talking now uh down uh down a a zoom call other technologies are available um or can we um you know find other ways to do business and that's what people are increasingly doing
0: and with battery technology as well uh, so many of the batteries now are are using lithium and the mining of lithium (laughs) used for electric vehicle batteries and also the batteries in things like smartphones tablets even the computers we're we're speaking on at the moment. The the mining process is incredibly dangerous and a very polluting practice. So again, is moving to battery technology a, a credible solution for simply getting to the net zero target, when that process can be so harmful.
1: Well, again, you know, and I, I go back to something that I agree with. I was talking about how you know I disagreed with the Indian uh, delegate in the for- the um, plenary I've just been in, uh, talking about um, you know resisting the move against fossil fuels. But what I would very much agree with was the Indian delegate said, and I'm just quoting my notes here: um, the developed world has to give up unsustainable lifestyles and and um, consumption patterns, um, and I would entirely agree with India on that. And what i would say about that is that um you know what we're doing now is trashing the planet we are creating um a we, we're desertifying the planet the climate unsustainable biodiversity falling off a cliff plastics everything else but what we've done while doing that is creating a thoroughly um miserable, unstable insecure society riven by poverty and inequality you know you look at the absolute epidemic of mental ill health um, in the uk and indeed much of much of the global north Um, and so really this is time to reassess and say you know how do we make the make the economy work for people instead of forcing people to work for the economy it's a real turnaround and it's actually making people's lives better And I sometimes run a thought experiment, you know, imagine we created this wonderful society, an absolute utopia, which everyone who wanted it had a good stable job. Those who didn't have a job had a steady income anyway, like a universal basic income, warm, comfortable, affordable, heat homes, wonderful public transport. And then we said, oh, we've just discovered there's this climate emergency and we're gonna have to change everything. That would be really difficult. So where we are politically now, we're talking about making changes that improve people's lives, and tackle the pressing emergency that's right here in front of us today.
0: And just on public transport, is HS2 the way forward?
1: Uh, absolutely not. Um, HS2 is um, built on that kind of idea of hypermobility that I was talking about. It is, of course, I was talking about the need to, to improve east-west links. It's running north-south. It's focusing money, people, and resources even more on London. Um, and it's immensely destructive. Uh, you know, it doesn't add up. What we want to do is, is, I was talking about the kind of hierarchy, start with walking and cycling, really focus on local buses, focus on the trains that get people around in their local area, you know, rather than getting people to London, let's get people from, say, Manchester to Hull. Um, that's more important to, you know, something Boris Johnson's always talking about, he talked about leveling up. I like to more talk about spreading out prosperity around the country. Um, and, you know, HS2 is the very old model, um, very old way of doing things. And you know, it just doesn't meet what we need, is massively environmentally destructive. And you think about all the resources, and you know, I've been to a number of places where they're building HS2, huge numbers of people, huge numbers of security guards because they don't have the consent of the public to build it. Um, Think about all of those people, all of those skills, all of that technology being put to improving our local rail lines. You know, that would, is where all that effort should be going.
0: A lot of people in protesting HS2, but another thing that's been at the centre of climate change protests is, of course, the protests led by young people. Young people have been at the centre of so many of these climate protests, which have had a, a lot of media coverage. I mean, why should world leaders and policymakers like at COP26 listen to uh, protesters like Greta Thunberg, for example, who don't have any background or experience in environmental science?
1: Well, I think what I would say is the young people here and, you know, I've met many of them here and talked to many of them here. uh, They don't represent the future. They represent the the present. 40 percent of the world's population is aged 25 and under. And what any of those is, is an expert on what it's like to be age 12 now, age 16 now, age 21 now. Um, They know about the world in ways in which you know the house of lords average age 70 um or the delegates here average age i'm told is over 60 and i believe it looking around um simply don't have the knowledge and experience of being young and you know the huge pressure that comes from knowing this is your future not just for 10 or 20 years but you hope 40 or 50 years um, and so you know, If you ask me the the answer to any question my answer will always be democracy Um, and that means listening to all of the people. The fact that COP's so unrepresentative, our governments are so unrepresentative. I mean I was at a brilliant event um, called She Changes Climate pointing out how incredibly gender unbalanced um, the UK uh, negotiating team and indeed the whole of COP is Um, and there was so much ideas, so much energy, so much potential there that's not being harnessed. And I think one of the things that we we have to acknowledge is to really change the way we think about human potential. Historically, you know, in the old days, we thought about, oh, you know, there's all these people who have got to find jobs for them. We've got to work out how to make the economy find jobs. I think we've really got to start thinking in a different kind of way, which is we face an enormous number of problems, environmental, social, political, educational. We need to make sure every human being on this planet has the chance to develop to their full potential and use that potential. If we're going to actually get out of the mess we're in now. So let's regard everyone as a resource. Let's make sure everyone has a voice. And you know, I wrote I wrote a piece at the start of COP about this, just how excluded young people, indigenous people, women are from this process. But of course, they're not allowing themselves to simply be pushed aside. They're building all of these alternative events, these alternative proceeds, procedures. And um, you know, that's where all of the innovation the energy is. It's not here in these halls with the tired old 20th century ideas like nuclear energy, uh, like like you know electric cars as a one-for-one replacement, uh, like how do we work out how we keep getting as much stuff or even more stuff but you know slightly more efficiently, but instead building a planet, a world that works for people, and looks after nature.
0: Along with other climate protests as well, they, there are groups that have tried to address some of those uh, problems, social, economic, political, and most notably, there has been the, the two groups, Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain. Now, their, their actions have caused a lot of debate and a lot of controversy. Do you, to what extent have the, the disruptive actions of those two process groups in particular actually undermined the the message that they're trying to achieve and almost alienate the people they're trying to bring into the conversation.
1: Well, I think when you um, bring together the climate strikers and Extinction Rebellion, uh, they deserve a huge amount of credit collectively for the fact that in the plenary that I've just been in here at COP, uh, every single speaker, with the exception of one uh, that I heard, utterly accepted that the target has to be keep warming below 1.5 above pre-industrial levels. That acceptance has come about because the urgency has been driven home by that non-violent direct action. The exception, I will say, just for, for the record, unfortunately, was Australia, which is you know one of the worst climate criminal countries out there. But so what non-violent direct action has done, as so often it has done in history, is actually shifted the goalposts, forced politicians to react to the demands. And I think if you look at Insulate Britain, what those actions did was got people talking about insulation and boy in the UK do we need to talk about insulation and you know I was talking about spreading out prosperity you could have small businesses with a decent government funded program and the right policy small businesses in every community in the land lots of jobs lots of prosperity in that community and businesses that would insulate homes and ensure that we don't have excess winter deaths as disgracefully we have at least ten thousand every year as a result of cold homes you know it's saving people's lives creating prosperity making people simply comfortable and healthy um you know, it's taken that to get that conversation on the table
0: as a, sort of a culmination of all the the efforts that the, the uk in particular is uh, putting uh, into uh, becoming more environmentally friendly the, the uk is planning to move to Uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Now, there's a lot of debate around whether or not this target is too ambitious or whether it doesn't go far enough. Do you think, as some have suggested, that actually there should be a a referendum on on this issue about whether people actually want to pursue the policies that are being enacted at the moment, or if there should be a different direction in the way that uh, environmental uh, change is, is brought about?
1: Well, to address the, use of the net zero and 2050 element first, um, I'm gonna quote the delegate from Bolivia who I've just been hearing in the plenary here at COP, who said net zero by 2050 is the great escape for developed countries. And I'd absolutely agree with that. Um, net zero essentially takes us to offsetting, which as I was discussing before is absolutely a con. Uh, we, and you know what we've seen in things like red plus has been the idea of a new form of colonialism we can get very often the global south to store our carbon for us, so we can keep emitting um, you know, using fossil fuels, keep emitting carbon. Um, so it should be absolute zero. Um, and 2050, you know, I can say with absolute confidence that not a single member of the cabinet now uh, will be around, uh, you know, in government in 2050 to be held to account. Um, what we need is interim targets. And indeed, I've just been spending a great deal of time in the Environment Bill in the House of Lords. Um, Baroness Brown of Cambridge uh, from the Committee on Climate Change was pushing the idea of having interim targets along the way in the, in the, the Environment Bill. And if you look at what India just came out with, which is they set um, net zero by 2070, which was actually an advance. I mean, it's more it's complicated, but it wasn't advanced. But what was crucial was they actually set interim targets along the way. So, you know, what we should be doing in Green Party Manifesto from um, 2019, anyone who looks, wants to look at it, we were heading towards very close to zero by 2030. And that's the kind of scale that's our responsibility, given our historic responsibility for all the missions are up there now, heating the planet up now, and the fact that we're a wealthy country that has the capacity to do that.
0: Okay, well, I'd like to move on away from looking at climate change and ask you about something you just mentioned there, which is the House of Lords. And there's an ongoing debate at the moment around how we should reform the House of Lords, if we should even reform it. And perhaps as a member of the Upper House, I might be able to guess your answer on this, but... Should we abolish the House of Lords?
1: Absolutely, which may not have been the answer you were expecting. Okay. Uh, um, uh, I was appointed to the House of Lords, and pretty well the first thing I did after I made my maiden speech was I trotted up to the Bill Office with my Elections and Other Reforms House of Lords Bill 2020, um, which uh, actually that no, was 2019. Then we've had two versions of it, um, uh, which was aiming to create a fully elected upper house. Um, yeah, the fact that we have a uh, mixture of patronage, which you might call the sort of 18th century method of people getting ahead, and heredity, we still have nearly a hundred hereditary peers, which is kind of the medieval version of people getting ahead, um, is an absolute disgrace and an embarrassment. Uh, I was actually a few, I think it was the cop in uh, Katowice, I was talking to some, some young European Greens, and I said to them, oh you know I'm afraid the un- we have an unelected House of Lords, and they laughed just it was such an odd concept and then they were very polite so they said oh so sorry we didn't mean to laugh but I can only say you're absolutely right you know the UK is not a democracy but what's absolutely astonishing is that um, not only do we have an unelected house of lords we have an unelected house of lords that's more representative of the country than the house of commons is because um, the House of Commons, Boris Johnson, got the backing of 44% of the people who voted. That was about 37% of registered voters in 2019. And he got 100% of the power in the lower house. Whereas in the upper house, the balance of power actually rests with the crossbenchers, which are the non-party people. Some very good people like um, John Bird, founder of The Big Issue. Uh, Sir Simon Woolley, founder of Operation Black Vote. Deborah Bull, ballet dancer now very much a champion of the cultural industries and it's actually people like that who have the balance of power in the upper house and you know this just just being beautifully demonstrated by the amazing sight of the duke of wellington leading the people's charge for action against the water companies on sewage Um, and you know it demonstrates what you can do with the house of lords as it is now and that's what i'm going to try and keep doing but you know we cannot have this situation continuing it's you know, people wanted to take back control in 2016, and I think they're absolutely right, but the lack of control, the problem is Westminster, it wasn't Brussels.
0: I mean, the House of Lords is the second largest parliamentary chamber in the world behind China's National People's Congress. I mean, do you think there should be fewer members? And if so, how should we go about reducing that number?
1: well i think we should replace the current house with an elected house and you can potentially do that in over the stages of two elections so that you would keep some of the you know apply some criteria that affects how much people have actually done useful stuff in the house and keep them you know and and so do it over two elections because an entirely new chamber would be i mean i wouldn't say don't do it but it would be a challenge um but you know despite the fact we've got i think it's a is it 820 I've, i've lost track of the last number it goes up so fast but um we still, you know, people make much of, oh, they're experts, they're scrutinizing. But if you look at, for example, at the financial services bill, which, you know, we have a huge problem with the financialization of our whole society. Um, the, you know, gambling out of control nature of our financial threat sector threatens the security of all of us. Yet, if you look at the debates, the de- what are supposed to be the detailed scrutinizing debates in the financial services bill, essentially, there was... Um, Myself, Lord Seeker, who's a very independent minded Labour peer, um, uh, Lord Davies of of Brixton sometimes, one or two other peers who were, you know, challenging what the financial sector is doing. There's a whole group of peers who are representatives of the financial sector saying the government should let them free, have fewer controls. But, you know, there were maybe four or five people in each debate group, if you were lucky. Um, So, you know, we're not seeing the kind of detailed examination of issues, even in the House of Lords, and if you look at debates in the Commons, I mean there's no no consideration at all, the government just pushes things
0: through. There's a case to be made about perhaps even keeping the hereditary peers in the House of Lords, as they act as a, a restraint when scrutinizing House of Commons bills, so for example, they understand the democratic deficits that they bring. And you know, a number of them have a, a variety of different perspectives due to their other interests and experiences. I mean, what, what do you make of that argument?
1: Well, I think you know, we should think about what it does to society. The idea that you can be born into a position just because of an accident of birth, just because of who your parents are, you end up with an accepted place in society. Now, that's something that effectively doesn't just apply at the very top of society to a few people. That's an inclination, an understanding that goes right through society. You know, I have grave concerns in talking about social mobility, because it very often means the idea that, well, you know, there's the occasional person who grows up in a poor community and will lift them up and out of that what we actually need is a society that meets everyone's needs that actually you know ensures that we respect and pay well every job that needs doing in our society you know that means street sweepers and bus drivers and school dinner ladies all of these jobs need to be done they should be respected treated properly you know care workers we've suddenly started to realize this is a tremendously skilled difficult job which we've treated with utter disrespect you know the whole hereditary principle is profoundly antithetical to the idea that we, are, we should be working towards a society where everyone's respected, everyone's skills and talents develop. Um, and you know, we allow everyone to flourish. It's the absolute opposite of that principle.
0: Well, to to finish, I I want to ask you about a, a couple of recent polls that have come out, which have actually shown a really big rise in support for the Green Party and could actually see the Green Party become a kingmaker should there be a hung parliament. So if a general election were called and it did result in a hung parliament, which party should the Green Party prop up in a minority government?
1: Well, I mean, we would never support a conservative government. You know that's the party of the financial sector, the party of developers um, who've got ourselves out of such a mess in the UK and in, in England here in particular. Um, we would be looking not towards a coalition but some sort of you know confidence and supply agreement. We would want to you know keep our independence and you know I'm very delighted and, and excited by the fact that we now have two green green ministers in the Scottish government. And that's been done on the basis that they have certain portfolios. They will work with the government. They won't, you know, bring the government down. Um, but they will also retain, remain there. In- retain their independence on voting on certain issues that are absolutely crucial to our understandings. And, you know, for those who are old enough, we really just have to think of the Lib Dems and tuition fees to see the kind of damage that can be done by a party, you know, not setting out its red lines, not saying where it's very clear that things that it won't support. Um, and so it's a matter a matter of balance of finding a way uh, forward. Um, and the interesting thing is where this is actually already happening, there are Greens in um, 13 local government authorities around England um, that are in what are often called rainbow coalitions, all sorts of mixtures of different parties getting together to deal with what needs to be done in the local area. Um, and that's something that you know, we're actually developing, weirdly enough, a European style, proportional representation style politics um, at the local level, because I think local people are so fed up with the nature of the politics that first pass the post has given us.
0: Okay, Baroness Bennett of Munnercastle, thank you very much for coming on the show, and best of luck for the remainder of COP26.
1: Thanks very much. I've enjoyed talking. 18 plus.